No warning, no escape. April 10 through 11, 1815, Mount Tambora, located on the Indonesian island of Sumbawa, blew its top. The eruption was so catastrophic, the sound could be heard, imagine this, 1,200 miles away. Mount Tambora was reduced from 14,000 feet to 9,200 feet in elevation. It's estimated that 10 to 12,000 people were buried alive by superheated ash and sulfurous gas clouds that raced ahead of the eruption. They were cut down right where they were. A group of researchers in 2004 journeyed to explore the central caldera, that's the depression that was left after the top blew off of this mountain, but a guide told them about a gully that was bleeding pottery fragments, and that uh, piqued their interest. And so, following that lead, the team discovered some 16 miles from the volcano an entire village buried under 10 feet of ash. The victims were preserved right where they were when disaster struck that fateful day. No warning, no escape, no survivors. The volcanic eruption of Mount Tambora is a sobering reminder that we don't live in a safe world. We never know. But that event is only a faint reflection of the far more cataclysmic destruction that will fall upon an unsuspecting world someday. One of the recurring themes of the Bible is the promise that the judgment of God will one day fall upon this earth. We cannot be Bible readers and deny this theme. It's not a popular theme. Not even among vast numbers of Christian churches. There's even individuals who write books to Christian pastors that say, don't talk about such things. Might be for a theology class somewhere, but don't preach about it. Don't speak to the church about such difficult topics. We're not supposed to say such things in polite company. But the last I knew, God wasn't asking us what we think. He does not spend His days laboring to adjust His plan for the ages to fit our expectations and to pamper our sensitivities. He tells us the truth because we need it. And He loves us. The truth of the matter is that the God of Scripture is a righteous judge. He's a judge of incorruptible righteousness who must hold sinners accountable in the end. It is who He is. It is what must obtain in this world. And one of the benefits of working through a book verse by verse is that it forces us to consider certain themes we might naturally avoid. And this is certainly one of them. Sending out a message that the message today would be about the judgment of God might not draw a lot of people in. It's not something we necessarily woke up hoping to consider today. But working our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians, here it is. And here it is again in the Word of God. It's not like it's a hidden theme. All of this discussion we might put under the phrase the day of the Lord, as the Bible does. The day of the Lord is a future end time event in which the Lord's judgment will fall upon earth 
He will pour out His wrath upon His enemies. That is one aspect of the day of the Lord. The other aspect of the day of the Lord, working right with it, is God's deliverance of Israel and His salvation of His people. So putting these themes together, the day of the Lord is a time when things are brought to an end. When judgment falls and final deliverance comes. As we work our way through the Bible, there's a lot of pieces that we begin to put together to understand this day of the Lord, and they're not always easy to put together, which is why Christians differ to this day on many of these end time events. But in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul instructs the church at Thessalonica concerning the resurrection of the dead in Christ and concerning the fate of those who are alive at the time of Christ's return when the day of the Lord comes. Verse 15, For this we declare, chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 15, he says, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We're not an advantage over them. The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who have trusted in the Gospel of Christ, who have died in that state of belief, will be called to life, their spirits reunited with their bodies at this time of Christ's return. Then, verse 17, we who are alive at that time, anyone who is in Christ, alive at that time, who is left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. As we come to chapter 5, Paul continues to discuss end time events. The theme, however, turns from the rapture of believers, the catching up of believers, to the pending judgment included as part of the day of the Lord. If we were to look at these first three verses, we might say something like this as the teaching of Paul and what the Spirit of God desires for us to learn today. Simply said, God's judgment will fall unexpectedly upon the world with no means of escape. God's judgment will fall unexpectedly upon the world with no means of escape. Now, we could take this text to any English class at a secular university and reading through this text, they could make that statement. God's judgment will fall unexpectedly upon the world with no means of escape. This is what Paul is saying. That is fairly clear. The issue is, how does that change our life? Is this a reality to us? Do we believe this to be the case? Verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul writes concerning the times and the seasons. I take those two words to just be synonymous, just one phrase, speaking of the end times. Now concerning the end times, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. I think that's a gracious way of saying you need to remember what I taught you before. And perhaps Timothy has just taught them in his recent trip to Thessalonica. But you don't really need me to teach you this. What are they to know? What do they know, in fact? 4 verse 2, no need for teaching because you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
The day of the Lord, referring again to the time that God pours out His wrath and judgment upon the earth in a season of unprecedented tribulation. That day will erupt unannounced, unanticipated. Now undoubtedly the wrath of God is issued against unbelief now in one sense of the term. God is angry with the wicked every day, the psalmist says. But this is a unique season of the visitation of God, of judgment upon the earth. It is unanticipated, unannounced. It comes indeed like a thief in the night. How does a thief come in the night and how does that affect us? When you pillow your head at night, you really don't expect a thief to come, do you? It's not because we cannot conceive of that happening. We know that thieves, in fact, do come to houses and break in in the middle of the night. In fact, we put locks on our homes to make sure that doesn't happen. We take precautions. But under normal circumstances, when we go to bed, there's no really expectation that a thief will come, right? Or you wouldn't all look the way that you do. Some look a little groggy, but we would be in bad shape with sleep here tonight if we were up all night thinking the thief is going to come. We don't think they're going to come. That's how the day of the Lord will be. It's not that no one on earth has ever heard of the coming judgment of God, but no one's going to expect it or anticipate it. In fact, as verse 3 says, here's the situation. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. One of the homes that was uncovered in the ashes in Indonesia was of a couple in their house. They didn't even get out of the house. They didn't, go any, they didn't expect anything to happen that day. And in, some, in a similar sense, that's the kind of sudden destruction that will come. What will people be saying? How will they be sensing their world? It, they will be saying peace and security. Peace. Inwardly, people will be filled with peace. That is, I think, in the sense that they'll be self-satisfied. It's not speaking here theologically of peace with God. It's just saying they'll be at peace. They'll be self-satisfied inwardly. Outwardly, how are they going to sense their world? It's going to be secure. The world will not be falling apart when God's judgment falls a troubled world there's all kinds of problems and there's all kinds of insecurities but generally speaking people will be saying peace and security it is as people go about their business in self-assured self-satisfied ways that sudden destruction comes the utter ruin of god's erupting wrath will fall upon the earth like labor pains on a pregnant woman that is, His judgment will fall suddenly. It will fall unexpectedly. People will not see it coming as such. What is even more tragic for unbelievers, there will be no warning, no anticipation, no escape. Before they know what's happened, people will be buried by the suffocating ash of God's wrath. Not in a literal way. But figuratively speaking, it will come upon them in sudden destruction. God's judgment will fall unexpectedly upon the world with no means of escape. Now, out of that message of doom, the passage emits a ray of hope. 
In fact, it starts to deal now with believers and how we should respond to this reality. Those who have been saved from the realm of moral darkness should live a life of vigilant expectation of the day of the Lord, of the return of Christ. Verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, that that day should surprise you like a thief. You are not in darkness. This is where other people are. Surprise. Unexpected. They are the subjects of doom, but that day will not affect you the same way. As believers, we are aware of end time events. Now we could put this in the imperative, be aware of end time events. But Paul doesn't even say it that way. He just states it as a statement. And those who know Christ as Savior, this is part of the very basics of our knowledge of Christ. That He will return. That judgment will fall. That the day of the Lord will come. You know this, he says. You're not in darkness. That day's not going to come upon you like a thief in the night. 4, verse 5, you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So we've been delivered from the realm of moral depravity and spiritual ignorance. We know that the day of the Lord is approaching. Believers are aware of end time events. But secondly, as believers, we should live then with moral vigilance. And this is where he really comes to the heart of the passage. How does this affect us? Again, any individual, any unbeliever looking at the first three verses could essentially say what Paul is is expressing here. But how does that change how we live? We should live with moral vigilance. Verse 6 starts with the phrase, So then let us. On the basis of this reality that we are prepared for the day of the Lord, then we ought to live this way. Verses 4-5, through what is true about us, we've been delivered from the realm of darkness, is now to flesh itself out in the way that we live. Standing should translate into living. You don't have a grasp of that idea that is so crucial to our understanding of the Christian life in the New Testament. Our standing in Christ translates into how we live. Our position in Him is to show itself in how we live our daily life. And so it is the case here, verse 6, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Verse 7, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night, generally speaking. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. We're not in darkness. We're not ignorant of the coming of the day of the Lord. So let's not sleep. What kind of sleep is he talking about? We're not to be characterized by moral indifference, spiritual insensitivity. We should not be inattentive to what matters to God, or to the pending tribulation that will fall upon this world. We're to be awake, alert, thoughtful, watchful, as children of light, to live with spiritual vigilance, attentiveness, and the word we find here, sobriety. To be sober. doesn't mean we never smile. But it speaks of moral self-control and self-restraint. A sober Christian is one who thinks clearly and acts becomingly in light of the day of the Lord. Can I say this again? Because we think of sober as someone who's not drunk. 
And then we go from there and sober is someone who's really, really serious. So Christians are to be sober. We may take that in the wrong way. What it means is moral self-control and self-restraint. To think clearly and to act becomingly in light of the day of the Lord. This day is real. It is coming. And so we live a certain way in the light of that coming reality. The sobriety in view here is fleshed out in the latter part of verse 8 where it says, since we belong to day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. I think the background is Isaiah 59, for anybody that's concerned about that. But I think he's just drawing from the Lord there and His provision and taking it and, say, and using these two pieces of armor, not because they're all important, but simply drawing us to the idea that we are to put on, the, on faith and love and hope and salvation. So let's ask this question. How do you prepare for the end times? We're not seeing instruction here from the Apostle that you get ready for the end times by reading fanciful novels about what it might be like. That's not how you get ready for the end times. You do not prepare for the end times by reading the tea leaves of current political events being up on everything that's happening, aware of everything that's happening, and watching that way. Our readiness for the future is not enhanced by predicting the time of Christ's return. None of that finds its way into what Paul is saying, and what often is missed here is what he's saying and the significance of it to us. Do you desire to prepare well for the coming of Christ and the day of judgment? That's why he's writing to this church. What is Paul's answer? Pursue growth in faith, hope, and love. That's how you prepare. Now, I'm not saying that events in the world are unimportant. Undoubtedly, there are indicators to the return of Christ. But again, we talk of this rabbit trail that some people take and they just never come back out of the woods. It's all about what is happening in world events and fanciful imaginations about what it might be like at the rapture and, and these kinds of things. That's not going to prepare us for end times. What will prepare us is to grow in faith. That is learning to depend upon God, believing His Word, trusting the Gospel, growing in my walk with Christ. Love. Learning to adore God and engage in self-sacrificing service to others to put others ahead of myself. Learning to live that kind of life, that's preparing for the coming of the Lord. Hope, that is living in earnest expectation that God will fulfill His promises concerning the future. That the day of the Lord will come, that Christ will rapture His people, knowing this, counting on it, trusting in His purposes. Preparation for the end times does not come from fine-tuning eschatological charts or interpreting world events fresh off the satellite dish. Preparation for the end times comes by walking with Christ. In being sober, in being vigilant, in being a man or woman of faith and love and hope. And so it's ironic. There may be believers in certain churches 
where there's this overwhelming emphasis on end-time events and getting all the charts exactly right and understanding all of the events and how everything's going to happen, and they may not be half as prepared for the coming of Christ as the church that's growing in faith and hope and love. That week after week, year after year, is soaking in the Scriptures and learning and growing in their faith. That's preparing for the end times. Now concerning this hope of salvation that's mentioned in verse 8, the helmet that we're to put on, this hope of salvation, Paul sharpens the point in verse 9. This helmet that we're to don points to this glorious reality. Verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our confidence in light of the pending judgment of God does not rest in what we have done. It rests ultimately in the electing love of God. We rest in the fact that God has chosen to save His people from the wrath by which He will judge the nations. God has not destined us for wrath. He saved us from wrath. And there's our joy. Now wrath has a huge word. Much that could be discussed. But this wrath, I don't think, is so much a description of God's emotion towards sinners, His anger against sinners, so much. Here it is more a reference to the retributive justice of God toward those who reject His grace. His justice, His righteousness, His wrath that will come should be taken in that sense. It refers to God's judgment upon sinners at the return of Christ. Now we won't delve too deeply into this, perhaps later, but premillennialists, and that's all I'm going to deal with here, those who believe Jesus will come before the millennium, that is, He will come to set up His kingdom on earth. Those who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, that Jesus will come before the great tribulation, see that great tribulation as the outpouring of God's wrath and believers will be spared from this wrath by the rapture. They won't suffer wrath. Premillennialists who believe in a mid-tribulational rapture, in a post-tribulational rapture, see the great tribulation as tribulation for believers, but as wrath only for the lost. In any event, the believer is spared from the wrath of God. And that's the significance of this particular passage. We are spared from God's wrath. We don't experience that wrath. That wrath, in fact, has been poured out on Christ. Verse 10, who died for us. So verse 9, God has not destined us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Christ. How? Verse 10, He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. In characteristic fashion, you'll find this also in Augustine, by the way, but Paul switches the meaning of the words awake and asleep. Here he means not those who are spiritually lethargic, those who are spiritually vigilant. So he's saying those that are awake and are really alert and are watching for Christ are going to be saved from the wrath of God. And those who are spiritually dull and lethargic, they're going to be saved too. 
I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's speaking here is he switches the meaning of awake and asleep, and it comes right back to where chapter 4, verse 13 and following started. Who are those who are awake and asleep? Now, it's an unusual use of the word awake, but I think he uses it because of this literary tool to get our attention. Those who were asleep in chapter 4 were whom? Again, not the person next to you, but who was asleep in chapter 4? That was the people who died in Christ. They were asleep. And so I think he's coming back to that theme here and saying that Christ died for us so that whether we're awake at the time of His return or we are dead in Christ, we will live with Him. Finalizing this section on eschatology. But the key here is that He died for us so that we will live with Him. This is a simple expression of the great exchange. Do you understand this great exchange? My sins are placed on the sinless head of Christ as He dies on the cross. By dying in my place and paying the penalty of God's wrath for me, His righteousness, His righteous standing is given to me as a gift. He takes my sin, I get His righteousness. He died that we might live. He died that those who deserve His judgment receive His grace and live. I may speak to someone who's never received that grace. You've never come to a place of saving faith in Christ and you really don't think of yourself as all that bad of a sinner. But let me say that you are. Apart from Christ, you are. The cheating, the stealing, the lying, the lusting, the hating of others, self-centeredness, loving other gods. You know, as you compare with other people, you don't look so bad. But as you compare with God, that's precisely what He's going to judge. If you've not repented of your sin, seen yourself as a lost sinner, placing your full trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of your sin, then you're living in rebellion against Him. You may not see it. Comparing with others, you may look pretty good. But comparing yourself with the righteous standard of God, you're lost. And the danger is that death will come. Perhaps even the day of the Lord, which is drawing closer and closer, will one day come like a thief in the night. You know, the people who lived in the shadow of Mount Tambora in the spring of 1850, it was not that they had no warning. The mountain had been spewing for days. It had been for years. For as long as anyone could remember, there was rumblings up there. There was no question that it could blow its top. But ignoring those signs, a volcano came upon them like a thief in the night, like contractions upon a pregnant woman. You know, for you, this sermon might be some of that spewing and rumbling. Some of that early preparation for the judgment of God. I would say to you, run to Christ 
Run to Christ for refuge. Seek in Him the forgiveness of your sins. Find your salvation in Him today. It's a free gift. It's of His mercy. God's wrath poured out on Christ. His righteousness given to you. But you must come on your knees. You must come to see yourself in abject spiritual poverty and in need of His rescue and His grace. For those of us who know Christ in this way, there's a different task that involves one another. We are to live with this moral vigilance as we are aware of the pending day of the judgment of God, the day of the Lord. But there's more to it, verse 11. We're to encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing He encourages that church. So be aware of end time events. Live with moral vigilance. But edify one another with this hope. You see, this truth of the coming of Christ, of the pending judgment, is not something we just slip in our back pocket. We take it with us as individual Christians. I'm aware of these things. But they're really to be truths that we use in one another's life. We see here a culture of mutual edification. This is not the pastor's job alone. This is a responsibility we all have toward one another. To use words to build one another up in the faith. It doesn't come just from the pulpit. It's to come from each other. How do we do that and when do we do that? Undoubtedly, one of the best times is at a time of death. We can use words of encouragement. Undoubtedly there we are to weep with those who weep and express words of comfort. But the ultimate comfort is that the wrath of God has been satisfied by Christ. That there is a resurrection to come. This isn't the end. That there is hope and life in Christ. We should take those words of hope and edify the church with them. Build one another up in the faith. But I think perhaps at other times, from time to time, it's good for us to fight discouragement by appeal to the promises of salvation from wrath revealed in God's Word and found in Jesus Christ. We have the Word of God. Certainly at times of sin, as we learn as a church to confess our sins to one another and to be honest with those sins, and to seek forgiveness from Christ and in prayer with one another. What a great word, brother, sister. God's wrath has been poured out on Christ. We have forgiveness. We don't deserve it. But we have it as a gift of His grace. Let's rejoice in that. We're to build each other up to edify one another in the faith. I tell you, these 11 verses, this is just weird stuff. This is about as countercultural a text as you're going to find. It steers us away from worldly preoccupation with the here and now. That's how this world operates. Everything's about here and now. This is an anti please me, give me, honor me message which characterizes our world. Even many unbelievers try to live good lives. Many of them are hoping to get their way to heaven by the way they live. But one thing that will entirely distinguish the genuine believer is a life-orienting expectation of the day of the Lord. You're not going to find that in this world. Because the gods of this world are in this world. 
The hopes and the dreams of the unbeliever are here and now. They want to hold on to this life for all that it's worth, and as Christ says, they're going to lose their life. But the distinguishing feature for the believer is that we have this expectation of the day of the Lord and we live in light of it. With moral vigilance, we are concerned that Christ may come. We think about that day. We rejoice together that He's delivered us from the wrath to come. Our lives are different. Yes, it's countercultural because we live in a culture that's going to hell. We have a hope unbeliever doesn't have, and we have a message that we need to proclaim to them. So how do we respond to this truth? I, I think F.F. F. Bruce put it so well. He said, it's not to live up tightly, it's to live up rightly. That's the deal. Not to live up tightly. We don't fear the return of Christ. We don't become overwhelmed with it in the wrong sense of the term, but we live uprightly. He is coming. And everything that I say and everything that I do and the decisions that I make in this life all need to be seen in the light of that coming day of judgment and salvation. And so for the believer, there's no fear. There's just a quest for faith and love and hope and spiritual sobriety and vigilance. That's where it makes a difference in our life. How can we read this passage and not ask the question, Christian, believer, Are you ready for the return of Christ? Are you ready for judgment day? Are we living in such a way that it's fitting us to face the Lord? Are you? What is between you and God that you really don't want things to end today? That's what we need to face. That's what we need to change. Now out there, We've got all kinds of support in this world. Because the unbelievers are doing all those very same things that are between us and God, and much, much worse. So we can get confused and think that that's just normal life. When we come to terms with the hope of our salvation, the coming day of judgment and salvation, when we come to terms with that, we live differently. If you've not been saved from God's wrath, there's no word of encouragement for you in verse 11. There's only a word of warning. If there is a word of hope, it is this, that the wrath of God has been poured out upon Jesus Christ. And As you trust Jesus as your Savior, His wounds will plead your state of forgiveness before God the Father. Embrace Christ as your Savior and you will be delivered from the wrath of God. That's your only hope. Apart from that, there's no hope. For those who have that hope, it should transform our daily living. It should be used by each of us to encourage one another. Let's do that today as we gather, as we break, as we meet over lunch with families or individuals or friends or wherever it is. Let's spend time encouraging one another with these truths. And Let's put down a deep stake today in what our world's not telling us. Judgment is coming. And encourage one another that the wrath has come on Christ. And we are now so rich. For those who have this hope, let us encourage one another 
and let us learn to gather as the body of Christ and to sing for joy. I've been delivered. I've been rescued. I stand on the solid rock of Christ who is my hope and my salvation. We have so much to sing. So much in which to rejoice. Let's do so. First in prayer, and then we'll lift our voices in song. Father, we acknowledge before You by way of confession we don't live with this vigilance as we should, with this anticipation as we ought. I pray that this message would shake us, would remind us what is pending, that we would live our lives not focused on the here and now, but fulfilling our responsibilities here and now in the light of Your coming return. We pray in behalf of a lost and needy world. We pray in behalf of any among us who know not Christ as Savior. And we pray, Father, in our own behalf, first, with words of confession, but then with prayers of thanksgiving. Thank You for what Christ has done. How rich we are. For in our souls, through Christ, there is peace with God. And there is security forever and ever. We rest in that as we thank You for it and rejoice now in song. Through Christ we pray. Amen.